The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to the program this Friday morning. You're watching Squawk Box and these are your headlines. U.S. stocks fall amid trade war fears. The Dow is set for its fifth weekly drop and its longest losing streak in nearly eight years. The 10-year yield hits its lowest level since 2017, while oil claws back losses after a near 6% plunge as investors brace for a drawn-out U.S.-China trade battle. President Trump says Huawei could be part of a trade agreement with China, despite branding the telecom giant as very dangerous. It's possible that Huawei even would be included in some kind of a trade deal. If we made a deal, I could imagine Huawei being possibly included in some form of or some part of a trade deal. Deutsche Bank shareholders back top management and chairman Paul Ackleitner survives calls to remove him from office as the struggling German lender warns of tough cutbacks. And Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, looks set to announce her resignation later today, according to various media reports. This as the British Prime Minister struggles to contain the cabinet backlash over her latest Brexit offer. Very good morning, everybody. Uh, let's just kick off here with a quick look at banks. Banks are a bit of a theme this morning. We're going to talk a lot about Deutsche Bank and that AGM yesterday. But let's just bring you some uh, numbers here from uh, Julius Baer. This is a quick update on the current trading situation uh, from the organization. The, uh, the bank says uh, assets under management uh, grew to a record 427 billion Swiss franc, a year-to-date increase of 12%. Um, assets under management increase driven by strong positive market performance and currency impacts, net new money inflows as well as the first time consolidation of uh, NSC Assessores uh, of Mexico. Uh, the group says net new money growth accelerated towards the end of the period, resulting in a growth rate of 3%. Improving market environment continues to drive client transactions activity and brokerage commissions throughout the period, particularly in Asia. So uh, Julius Baer, one of those uh, banks that says it has been a beneficiary of uh, this higher market volatility, which is interesting because not everybody has been as upbeat about mm. it. In terms of some of the other data, the uh, CET1 capital ratio strengthened to 13.1% uh, from the 12.8% at the end of 2018, uh, total capital ratio of 19.2%. Uh, cost income ratio below 73%, an improvement from the 74.3% in the second half of 2018. Um, I would vouchsafe that they could probably do a bit better than that, um, but we'll have to see. Cost income ratio improvement did not, not yet benefit from the 2019 cost reduction program, the implementation of which has uh, started and is on track. So we can expect to see that uh, cost income ratio come down. The gross margin, 82 basis points here. 
so a quick look then there at uh, the update from Julia Spare. Does it just sum up the environment we've had where it's been challenging? So a lot of the, those in financial services have been forced down the pathway of more cost reductions, waiting for the environment to improve, and it did. But is it backward looking now because we had a turn in the markets in May? So what comes next for, for many of these companies? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a... Um, <laughs> There's, oh, bless you. Um, I, well, there are, a couple of, there are a couple of things going on here. I think uh, money is moving to scale because people are nervous about putting their money with smaller institutions. And I think the, the other one is the first mover advantage. If you are demonstrating, uh, one, security, two, relatively decent return, and three, that you have a management that's on the ball in terms of the cost-income ratio and, and really uh, understanding the shifts taking place in the asset management world, I think the money will come to you. And I think Julius Baer, clearly with the news that they're delivering this morning about the assets under management, they fall into that former bucket, it would seem. Mm. Well, we have uh, a speaker coming up later on today talking about whether the markets have now really collapsed away from some of the best levels we're going to have for 2019, whether we've got real reversal taking place. And well, that's I think a really that's upbeat be, conversation, Well, I think that's going to be instrumental for, for Julius Baer and the yes. like that uh, have been enjoying this great ride in 2019 after what we saw at the end of last year. Well, and, and this, is, um, this is something that I know Steve would bang on about if he were up here uh, with us. We'll catch up with him uh, from central London in just a moment. But the point is this. If you are an asset manager, you shouldn't have a view on the market. You should be able to make money in bear markets and you should be able to make money in bull markets. And unfortunately, what we have learned, I think, over the last two decades, and particularly since the financial crisis, is that there is a bias in the markets to be long markets mm. and make money in bulls. Yeah. And people struggle when the, you then get a bit of volatility and you, you get some um, pushback to the bear side. Mm. But for goodness sake, what are we paying all the fees and the commission for? Right. You are the experts. You're meant to know the markets. Put us in the right asset classes for the market trend. That's and and that's kind of what we're here for every day as we talk to the people around this desk to try and find out from them what they're seeing in the markets, the switchback, the opportunity and so forth. You've just forth. opened the door to, to market architecture with all of these ETFs and passes out there which really benefit uh, those sort of long positions that you're talking about. And I wonder whether it's even possible to have the sort of bets that you're talking about these days because of that. Well, the trouble is, I mean, the, I mean for goodness sake, what else are they there to do? That's their job in this industry. But it's the emperor's new clothes now, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. we're suddenly finding out who's been walking down the street naked. Right. And speaking of which, I want to take you to markets because we've got this shakedown taking place now around trade fears again. And the markets are flashing up red. A fairly deep percentage falls is what we had on session yesterday. At one point, uh, much steeper losses, uh, percentage falls than where we closed up shop. For instance, the Nasdaq was down about 2.1% at its lows, eventually closing down less than 1.6%. So that clawback taking place in the technology sector. Also in the S&P 500, it was down 1.8% at one point uh, versus the 1.2% that we lost uh, by the end of the day. And the 1.1% down for the Dow, 1.7% lower at the worst of the selling in session yesterday as investors still eyed uh, some of the commentary around a trade war. What we've heard from Donald Trump again, the uh, fear campaign around Huawei Technologies is described as a very dangerous company, but at the same time suggested maybe just maybe it could be packaged up nicely and all the issues that uh, the US has with Huawei 
could be solved in a broader trade agreement. So very mixed messages on Huawei, which has had very big ramifications for the semiconductors. I want to show you uh, the impact on US yields because the market has been concerned around the demand story, the pace of growth if this trade rhetoric continues. And what you've had has been a much lower in some of these yields as a result, also some inverted parts of the yield curve, the tenure at 2.32. Energy, uh, a rough day for energy. We saw crude oil settling down 5.7% uh, in its worst trading day since Christmas Eve, right at the, at the height of some of that selling late last year. So this morning, we're trying to lift off those levels, though, which is why you're seeing gains of just over 1% on the trade for both Brent and WTI. Asian markets uh, rounding out the Friday session, mostly in the red for China. We're down about one point, so a fraction lower. Australia reversing almost eight-tenths of a percent. And Japan uh, modestly lower by four-tenths. The bright spot around the Hong Kong market, trading up by about two-tenths of a percent. But it is uh, incredibly cautious as we've moved to around four-month lows on some of these indices. And uh, the, the China trade, I think, just telling you about a bit of stabilisation coming in late session today. The opening calls as we remain in the middle of European elections now and some uncertainty around the leadership of the Conservative Party here in the UK. We've got green arrows across the board. We're chasing a fairly decent 67 for the Italian market uh, and decent arrows right across uh, these boards to the FTSE 18 to the upside we're chasing here. Uh, thank you, Karen. Let's get back to the trade war story. President Trump has suggested tensions with Huawei could be resolved as part of a wider trade deal with China. The Trump administration has placed the tech firm on a trade blacklist, citing national security concerns. Speaking at the White House, Trump said the Chinese telecom giant posed a security risk. Huawei is something that's very dangerous. You look at what they've done from a security standpoint, from a military standpoint, it's very dangerous. So it's possible that Huawei even would be included in some kind of a trade deal. If we made a deal, I could imagine Huawei being possibly included in some form of or some part of a trade deal. Well, for more on the uh, reaction from China and how some other companies are positioning around this story, let's get out to Arjun in Hong Kong. Good morning, Jeff. I just want to run through actually what's happened with uh, President Trump, the U.S., and the way they've approached Huawei. You now see that the U.S. sees Huawei as a bargaining chip. Let's go through the tactics they've been using. First, the U.S. went on a campaign to try to convince countries not to allow Huawei into 5G. That threw up some mixed results. So the U.S. went straight for the supply, putting Huawei on this blacklist, making it difficult for it to get key components and um, software that it requires. Uh, and then it gave Huawei this reprieve, allowing it temporary access to some of these services it looked to restrict it from. So the U.S. clearly showing it knows how to hit Huawei where it hurts. It's trying to force Huawei into some sort of submission hold and hopefully getting the Chinese government to tap out when it comes to the negotiation table. It's difficult to know what exactly he means by Huawei could be part of a, a broader trade deal. Even in, in follow-up comments, he said that this kind of deal would look very good for us, i.e. the U.S., but it's too early to say what that might look like. But there are, of course, other companies getting wrapped up in this. Uh, one of those companies is Lenovo. It reported very strong earnings yesterday. It swung to profit for the fi full fiscal year. It hit record revenues, but still shares were under pressure in today's session. And a lot of that is because of the concern of what Chinese company is next in this broader um, trade war. There are threats, of course, of further tariffs 
on around $300 billion worth of Chinese goods, and that could include electronics as well. Lenovo is one of the world's largest PC makers. It's also got its own smartphone division. But I had the chance to catch up with Waiming Wong, who's the chief financial officer at Lenovo, and ask what kind of impact further tariffs could have on the company's business. Let's listen into what he had to say. At this point in time, obviously, uh, I think there is uh, the list potentially to be announced by the U.S. government uh, and possible increase in tariff. Uh, we obviously uh, are, are well prepared, I think, in the event that it happens, because I think one thing that you may or may not be aware of Lenovo because of the business model, we actually have about, I would say, 55, around 55, 60 percent, I think, of our product do in-house. And our manufacturing footprint today exactly around the world, not only in China, but also in Japan, in Mexico, Brazil, uh, everywhere. So we have definitely the ability to shift some of the production, I think, from, I think, the impacted countries like China, I think, to the countries where we can continue to, I think, uh, without having the impact uh, of the tariff. So we, we definitely, uh, I think, can have different uh, plans or actions, I think, to mitigate, in fact, that it happens. So would that mean switching some production potentially to the U.S.? Uh, I think U.S., we also have a small, I think, production line there, assembly line there. I think we definitely, as a businessman, I think we obviously look at the overall P&L. I think what is the cost? Will, will the, I think moving to U.S., you obviously uh, have a higher cost, but lower logistic cost, moving to Mexico, moving. So at the end of the day, I think what, what I'm saying is we, we probably have various options, uh, I think, for us to find the optimal solution to continue to service our customers, uh, try to mitigate the impact of the increase in tariff. That was the Lenovo CFO. They're very confident they could mitigate any risks from uh, further tariffs. I did ask in another part of that interview whether the company had further contingency plans beyond switching productions, for example, stockpiling components like Huawei reportedly has been as well. Uh, Waiming Wang didn't said he couldn't go into too much detail, but said they were well prepared for any further tariffs. It was one of the more positive days for Lenovo, given that it's uh, been on this turnaround plan and it's managed to see some success in that. But there's still a big black cloud hanging over this company and what kind of impact further tariffs could have on Lenovo's business going forward. Guys, back to you. Arjun, I just want to get into the ramifications of Huawei because it occurred to me yesterday, it's not anti-Huawei, the message from Trump. It's not anti-China. It's anti-globalization. Uh, and in this context, I was talking to uh, a tech startup here in London, and she explained to me that when you've got these big tech companies chasing scale, they look for the best opportunities in various countries where the skill set may lie and, and the content, and some of that has been in the United States, to where you can get cheap access to some uh, services, whether that's storage and, and countries across Asia. So effectively, if you target some companies like Huawei and their suppliers, you start to smash the global supply chain for technology. And what we've seen through the story around Panasonic, in particular yesterday, and Lenovo, is that companies that are getting content from the United States with a 25% threshold now finding themselves caught up in these Huawei restrictions. Do you think we're going to see a tweaking, a changing of how much content is derived from certain places around the world to try and get around what looks like an anti-globalization push from Trump? Yeah, I think you'll see uh, companies definitely, and you've seen this already, the likes of Huawei and Lenovo look a lot more closely at their supply chains. You hit the nail on the head, the supply chains are global and they're very, very complex. And this is the issue here, is that Huawei, uh, as, a, as a prime example, is now forced to look at the, where it's getting components from a lot more closely and try to figure out how it might get around some of these restrictions. I mean, you, you think about the ARM scenario. Uh, this, is, of course, is a British company.
But that's been now dragged in and Huawei's been uh, forced to suspend business with ARM. And ARM is such a key supplier to Huawei because it forms the basis of a lot of the, the chips. And you also saw uh, Taiwan Semiconductor um, also come out and say that luckily it, it hasn't uh, gone above that 25% threshold. But that's something that I think companies are going to look a lot more closely at. For Huawei, for sure, I think you'll see a lot more focus on Huawei on trying to figure out um, exactly where it can uh, research and develop new products. For example, it's already doing that in, in processors. It's doing that in modems, which are two very key components of um, their smartphones. But there are other components that it still relies on uh, the U.S. for what's known as radio frequency chips, for example, which it still gets in the U.S. But I suspect while we'll be looking a lot more closely at what are other suppliers and actually how much can it start to build in-house now just given all of these trade tensions but that is an incredibly difficult process it's an incredibly complex process just given the global nature of these supply chains Arjun thank you very much for that and for more on Lenovo's plans in the event of a tariff hike you can head online to cnbc.com Elsewhere, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has told CNBC that Huawei's CEO is not telling the truth about sharing information with the Chinese government. The company is deeply tied not only to China, but to the Chinese Communist Party. And that connectivity, the existence of those connections, puts American information that crosses those networks at risk. I've spent a lot of time over the last months uh, talking to our partners around the world, uh, explaining to them why putting their citizens' t uh, information, their citizens' national security currents at risk by having that technology inside of their systems. Mr. Secretary, I don't want to diminish, diminish the potential risk. Um, can you help us? Is there, is there evidence that, that we can point to specifically today to suggest that there was spy, spyware or other kinds of spying taking place using Huawei hardware? Yeah, that's the wrong question, Andrew. <laughs> if you put your information, your information, in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, it's de facto a real risk to you. They may not use it oh, today. Not, they not may not use it tomorrow. I, I don't want to diminish the yeah. risk. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just raising the question because we, we've also heard from the CEO of Huawei who says, look, we don't share this information. We're not, we're not working with, with the Chinese government. Point to yeah, something I mean, that's specific. False. That's just false. To say that they don't work with the Chinese government is, is a false There's statement. There's a law that they must work if asked. He's required China. to yeah. by Chinese law to do that. So uh, it's just... Uh, the, uh, the Huawei CEO on that, at least, isn't telling the American people the truth, nor the world. Good pushback there by Andrew, but it's a bit rich, isn't it? You may recall last year there was a big fight with Apple because the FBI wanted Apple to install a, a backdoor to get around all the encryption. Yes. So it's the same type of scenario that they would try to set up domestically in the United States that they're accusing Huawei of having now with China. Yeah, but I think, I mean, in, t in terms of the optics, there is a difference between a legitimate um, uh, law enforcement organization requesting information from a technology company that it believes is held on a mobile device and a Chinese company which is in effect owned or sanctioned by the state than being involved in passing information backwards and forwards between government entities. But you believe it would have just stopped with the FBI, that then the NSA and everybody else wouldn't have had access to that encryption tool in the United States? Well, that's why I said it's about the optics, because right. um, I have no doubt that if the um, NSA wants information that's on your phone, it'll find a way of getting hold of that information. Mm. And, of course, we, we have many, many examples of um, the Americans spying on the Germans and using technology to achieve that. But then I'm not naive enough to think that 
countries all around the world aren't doing the same thing to each other. So, you know, this has become a stick with which to beat the Chinese to wrest some form of economic advantage. Fine, let's see the game play out and let's see ultimately who wins here. And, you know, we're here every day to talk about the impact on the markets. Funnily enough, there's been no evidence put forward there. And is that because Pompeo and the like did not want to pre present sort of a roadmap as to how this information is accessed, how they know that there's been spying taking place. Because we keep hearing these claims, but we've not had any evidence. The, the most that's really come to light is that there was a backdoor discovered from Vodafone in Italy, yeah. which was then denied by both Vodafone and Huawei as merely a testing device. It wasn't about a security threat, but you know what Pompeo and what Trump have been saying has not been backed up with anything yet that's been revealed to the public. Uh, get in touch uh, if you want to get involved in the conversation we're having here. This one's going to run a little bit longer, I suspect. <laughs> exactly. The US Commerce Department has unveiled a proposal that would see levies imposed on goods from countries that undervalue their currencies against the dollar. The new rule is expected to impact China, but it could also hit Japan, India and Germany. In a statement, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said the new rule would stop countries from using currency policies to quote the disadvantage of American workers and businesses. Interesting to see whether how they would actually extrapolate out the value for Germany when you need to come currency. Indeed, and I'd love to talk about it, but I know we've got to get to Steve after the break, and I know we need to take the break, so let's push on. President Trump has unveiled a $16 billion aid package for farmers hit by trade tensions with China. The package will see farmers receive billions in direct payments and will be determined by location rather than by crop. Uh, so what happens here for UK Prime Minister Theresa May? Uh, there are reportedly plans being drawn up for her to announce her departure from Dallas. Downing Street will uh, get the word from the ground when we get out to Steve after this. The pound continues to hover near 2019 lows amid reports British Prime Minister Theresa May will reveal her resignation date later today. According to several media outlets, May will set out her timetable at a meeting with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tory MPs. Let's get out to Steve for more from Westminster this morning. Good morning, Steve. Yeah, good morning, Karen. Look, um, all of this at the moment, I have to say, is speculation. Now, there are a whole host of timetable questions that we have. But the first timetable question is, is she going to meet Graham Brady's day? Yes. Uh, do we have any official word from number 10 about it being about her departure? No. Uh, has she confirmed that she will announce her resignation today? No. So I think a lot of people are probably making uh, probably wise speculation in many ways about what they see as a course of events. But it is still speculation nonetheless as well. In fact, some reports have said it could be as late as Sunday that actually uh, we get an announcement from the Prime Minister, although many are saying after the meeting today, uh, things need to move apace, of course, because as soon as uh, Mrs May does announce her resignation, the question is, will she remain as Prime Minister as well? Because she'll be resigning, of course, as the head of the Conservative Party and the new head of the Conservative Party, uh, an election process will take place thereafter. But will she stay on just for the Trump visit or will she she stay on till the end of that a process to find a new leader, which could take to the end of July, up to six weeks as well? Or will she go immediately and someone like David Liddington, her de facto deputy, uh, take over as a caretaker as well? Uh, so lots of questions on that as well. Questions too uh, about who will be the new leader, of course, and the whole process, as I was outlining uh, on the programme yesterday, can take a very long time. This is a two-stage process, as we said to viewers yesterday. The first stage is the part 
parliamentary party works out who the candidates are and then over a series of ballots the least favourite is knocked out until you have two candidates left and then those two candidates uh, will go to the members in the country which is approximately 125,000 Conservatives. They will hope to have this whole process wrapped up by the July recess. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.